It is so good to be here with all of you. There's so many different uh, faces and people that are gathered here. It's just the coolest thing. I mean, from out of town and from in town and uh, some new people that I haven't seen before that are here today. It's just awesome. So thankful that, you know, there's a comfort level here to, to just come and spend some time with people who are seeking to know God and to, to understand who Jesus is. And, you know, a minute ago, Roz uh, said something about uh, the women, or men too, if you want, but decorating the the room and, and all the church. And it was funny, last year, uh, I really didn't know when we were supposed to decorate. I didn't even know where the decorations were, you know? So one week, in at some point in December, Roz came up to me and goes, Scott, who's decorating? I mean, I already put it all out too. And she asked me, who's who's decorating? I'm like, well... I don't know. <laughs> so she said, next year, I'm on it. I'll take care of it. So thank you. Uh, it should be good this year, for sure. And uh, the tree will be here, right? We're, we're on that. We're on that. Claire set a new record for us this winter. Uh, before, in, in every year before, the Christmas music didn't actually start until Friday after Thanksgiving. For me, that's early. For her, that's late. So, she, so f- this year, about a week before Thanksgiving, she, she goes, uh, Scott, I just want you to know we're starting Christmas music. And, but she did concede that there didn't have to be words. So we had this, you know, just m- music, you know, without the words, until I- immediately when the Thanksgiving food was done, the Christmas music came on with the words. That's <laughs> uh, her thing. So I guess we're moving it pretty soon. It's going to be Halloween, you know, click. The, playli- the Christmas playlist is going to come on, but that's okay. It's all snowy and, and Christmassy here. So, Hey, uh, we're at the end of our series on Acts, and it's the second part of Acts that we've been going through. We, uh, back last fall, we looked at the first part. The second part of Acts is where the message of, about Jesus goes out and goes, basically goes north, and these folks who follow Christ closely and follow him well are going out and heading up, and they're going to these different cities that are art capitals, they're um, on trade routes, and when they get there, they're presenting the gospel in different ways, in different places, and, and so we've been following that story as it's unfolded, and, and this week we're going to look at, at one uh, episode in the life of Paul, and next week we're going to wrap it up, and we'll, we'll hit some highlights from the last 10 weeks or so. This story is particularly about Paul because he's the only guy who's in this town, and he's in the town of Athens, which all of you have heard of. And when you picture Athens, just like you think it would look, this is what it looked like when he was there. And he was on his uh, missionary journey. I think it's his second journey, and he's over there on the, on, in Greece, in Athens. And in that place, uh, he's waiting for uh, a couple other people to meet him so that they can do the work that they have planned to do. But Paul, as you know, has such a passion for Christ and such a, you know, he has this sense of urgency, if you're familiar with his story at all, for getting the message of Jesus out that he is, he is just overwhelmed in Athens. And all of us are aware of what Athens might have been like, you know, with the pantheon of gods, with the, with the uh, altars and the temples and everything that you see. When you look at pictures, and maybe perhaps you've been there. And I almost picture Paul in this setting, right at the beginning of it, 
in, you know in the movies where they have a picture of, the, of one of the characters and they're just looking at his face or her face and it's going around and they're showing what they're observing. And the passage says that Paul is disturbed. He's, his spirit is provoked because he's, he's so worked up when he sees all of these people seeking after gods that are leading them nowhere. And he sees all these altars and uh, priests and all this stuff. And he, he has such a passion for Christ and an urgency in his heart for getting that message out that when he sees that, he's just, he's really overwhelmed. But instead of, you know, instead of getting depressed, instead of backing up and, and hiding out, he, he does what he typically does. And he goes into that community. And there's really, uh, uh, even though he's alone, he steps right out. And in the process of the conversations that he gets in, when he, we're going to look at him in just a moment, he comes in contact with some of the leaders of the community, and he ends up before this council. And before the council, he has a very short amount of time on this, this stage, basically, before them to, to explain the gospel, to tell about who Jesus is. And it's a fascinating story of how he does that in just a few words. And the amazing thing about it to me is that he doesn't, there is no Bible at this point. He doesn't have letters. He hasn't written anything yet. He, there's nothing that's, that's circulating that we have today. And so he can't, and in this culture, he can't refer to any of these things that we would typically refer to. Oh yeah, well it says in the Bible here and this kind of thing. He has none of that to work with here. And so it's really amazing how he does it. And I'm gonna show you. And here's, here's the thing that it gets down to with Paul in this situation is he, he goes through this process of, of talking about who God is, and at the very end, he leaves this council with a question that they have to answer. He doesn't ask them the question, but he puts this, this thing before them, and it, and it essentially is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And when you take away everything that we think are the forms of the church, all the religion, all the history, all the things, that the Bible, everything that we have, and you get down to the very bottom level, the very proving ground of it, the question is not, you know, is, is it evolution or creation? Not is, is, does God do miracles or are there other religions that are good? It's, none of that is, that's not the point. Who is Jesus? And that's where he goes with this. And he leaves them there to, to answer that question. And for us... Uh, I think it's important for us to sit in the seat of that, that council today, if you will, to listen to Paul's uh, presentation about Jesus and to take it in. And uh, there's a, a speaker named Andy Stanley who I, uh, I like the way he talks. And one of the things that he said about this passage, he said, in actually coming to it, he said, a lot of us, maybe we started out our faith in, in Jesus when we were young. And at some point, that progress of growing and understanding who he was and following him kind of trailed off and our maturity stagnated. Some of us came to Christ later in life, perhaps, and, and we learned a lot and things were great in, in we, f- we felt really connected to who he was, and he was filling us up, as it were. But then, suddenly, that, that sort of stopped, trailed off a little bit. 
this is sense of stagnation because the way he describes it is as if, as if we sort of built a house of cards. That we just said, okay, well, I've, I've got these pieces and I'll, and I'll put them together and stack them up. And pretty soon I have this thing that is my faith and I kind of look at that and that's what it is. And, and this is the way he describes it. He says, somebody comes along or you watch a show or you hear something, you know, and, and suddenly somebody's taken out one of those cards. And you're like, wait a second. All, all this whole thing kind of depended on that one. And so suddenly our house of cards that is our faith is shaky. It's crumbling or, or close to crumbling. Maybe a couple of cards have been pulled out. I think all of us have probably been through that. Certainly I have. We, we come to these moments where um, we are, uh, our faith is vulnerable and I think uh, as, we, as we come to this passage, as we're sitting, as it were, as the council and listening to Paul present what he wants to tell us, that uh, perhaps instead of, instead of looking at the cards that we've set up and the, the kind of stagnated maturity that you might have been at, uh, perhaps Paul's going to take us down to the foundation and say, you know, it's not all about those things. Everything, y'all, that we build in our minds, all those things are fragile. We have to go back to the very basic thing, and that is who is Jesus. When we're struggling, if somebody pulls a card out, or we pull a card out, or something happens in life that pulls a card, that doesn't mean it's all falling apart. Because here's the thing. The truth is independent of what I do or think or make up or my mistakes. The truth will stay. Okay? So, my house of cards, the things that I've built, are, are, what we need to do is go beyond and below that to the foundation. And that is who is Jesus. I had a, a coffee with a guy. He's a, one of our 20s here at, at OB Joyful. He's a very deep thinker. And he said, uh, he said, actually, he, he was quoting, in a way, C.S. Lewis. He, I don't think he realized it, but he said, you know, Scott, if, if this is true, if it's true about Jesus, that he's the Son of God, that he was resurrected, if this is true, then it changes everything. But if it's not true, then it means nothing. It has no meaning whatsoever. It's just a bunch of words. And the, th- the thing is, he says there's there's no in-between. It's on or off. And I think that's a really sublime thing is we're as, wherever you come from today, wherever you are spiritually today, if what Paul is saying about Jesus is true, then it changes everything. So what I want to, I guess, ask you to do is... is a couple of things. One, if you're, if you're a skeptic, if you're wondering, do I believe this? What is going on? These cards are getting knocked out. I'm struggling with this. I'm not sure where I'm at. I'm just, I'm having a hard time with this whole faith thing and Jesus and whatever. If that's where you are, I want to encourage you to really just soak up the logic that Paul provides. Uh, and, and listen to the way he presents to this community of people 
who is exposed to everything and takes everything in almost as if it were equal, which sounds a lot like our society today. If you're someone who's a believer and maybe you're not struggling, you're, you're, you're confident, you have that foundation, you know who Jesus is and you're there, then maybe uh, you could look at the way Paul interacts with this community that he's in, this, this council of people and the people that he's with before he meets them and see exactly how it is that this guy on his own can step into this place and speak of Jesus and see, see what you can learn, see what you can take away from that. So we're, in, we're actually in Acts 17. We'll have this kind of rolling up on the screen, but there's Bibles down there. By the way, if you need one, feel free to take one of these at any point. So today I'm going to do something a little different if you've been coming for a while. I'm actually going to pull out my glasses and uh, read out of here. It's, it's kind of an extended story, and I want to just unfold it with you as we move along. And, uh, and hopefully... Uh, one of those paths, either just really listening and, and sitting as the counsel or coming before uh, these ideas that Paul has about how he interacts with, these, with this lost world that he was in. Uh, one of those things is going to resonate with you and you can take off in that. So if you will, look over with me at, uh, this is chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. So remember, I was trying to describe that thing. He's looking around and he's seeing all these things that, he, that are just, the word provoked in, this, in the original text is, is strong. He is, he is upset by this. And he, he, his passion for people has... Um, in for getting the, the message of Jesus out is just convicting him. So rather than going home to his, you know, Motel 6 and having some bad coffee and the bad breakfast, he goes out, and that's the next thing you see there in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So, what Paul does, and you may remember this, but Paul's the guy who's called to reach out to people who don't know anything about the Jewish faith or a Messiah or anything. That's his target. That's who God's called him to reach out to. But he starts out in the synagogue because Paul is a Jew. That's his history. You know, he was an educated Jewish guy. He was a teacher of Jews. So he starts out in the synagogue in the place that he feels most comfortable. I think it's really interesting to see how Paul operates, Right? He doesn't go to the most difficult place first. He goes to the most comfortable place first, where people have an understanding of one God. And they're anticipating a Messiah. So he can come in and talk about that kind of thing. So Paul steps into this environment. First he goes to the synagogue. And whether it's like he, he spends the morning there or, or whatever, but he heads out. And by the afternoon, picturing Paul, he's in the marketplace. Now this is where this guy is pretty bold. All of us are in the marketplace. Okay? Everywhere that we go, publicly, we're in the marketplace. And Paul is out there, and uh, I, I think I picture, you know, if you've ever been to a really small town, maybe in a third world nation, you, you know how everyone comes into the main street area. And though we don't really have that because if you, we don't have like an affordable marketplace really in the main street area. Everyone's not going there all the time. But 
that's where he goes, where the traffic is coming, and he goes to the, you know, whatever they had, the coffee shop at that time, and he begins to meet people, and he's talking to them. And he builds these relationships, and you can see this through Paul's story. He, he's not just preaching at them. He's building friendships so that, in fact, if you look at the next verse, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him. And some said, what, is this, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. So before long, Paul has gotten himself connected to this religious philosophical society in Athens. And actually, Athens at this time, y'all, is not that big. It obviously um, has all of this incredible architecture and stuff, but in terms of the number of people, it's not that big. And so he's started, he's begun to know people and... So I think it's interesting, too, the, the, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Most of us have some idea of what those things might be. If you think of an Epicurean, you think of someone who's just enjoying life, right? A lot of times that's around food. Well, that, that was their thing. The, the Epicurean idea essentially was to remove the burdens and the strap, the, being strapped down by fear and morals and things like that, and just to enjoy life in, in a sense of peace. So I think... Tranquility is a word that they're after. So you can picture the Epicurean. But on the other side are the Stoics. And we all, we know uh, what the word Stoic means. Kind of, it sounds like the Epicurean's uptight brother or sister. You know, this is the person who, uh, they tie responsibility and um, civic duty and doing the right thing together real, real tightly. And so they're looking for meaning in that, where the Epicureans are looking for meaning in just tranquility. So Paul is interacting with both of these groups. There's no, there's no extreme that Paul is not comfortable just chatting in. Well, in this town, if you were uh, bringing new ideas, then they wanted you to go before their council and tell those people about your new ideas. Because essentially, uh, if, it was a, if you had enough influence, then they wanted to know who you were and what you were teaching. That's what happens next. So verse, let's see, 19. And they took him, and they brought him to the, Areopi- the Areopi- <coughs> Areopagus, <laughs> Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time, this is Luke's comment, in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I guess Luke didn't think too highly of that idea. The Areopagus was a group of leaders. This is what I was calling the council. And they met, uh, the Areopagus was actually this huge rock. It it means, it basically means big rock. And uh, Mars Hill is right across from that. And it's not clear exactly where they met, whether on the rock or on Mars Hill. Mars Hill was the big, uh, you can look it up, it's just a fabulous uh, government and civic area. So Paul is brought before them to tell them about these strange new ideas that he has. And so, look at verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, You've got to picture that for a second. These critical thinkers, the philosophers and religious leaders of the time. 
Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The thing that Paul does here, I think, is, is fascinating. The first thing he does is say, I respect you. I respect who you are. I see that you're religious. It's, it's not, uh, you know, I, th- I think the church is so often, when it interacts with secular society, comes across as judgmental and unkind. And, and even if that's not the intent, there is this automatic sense of, um, since I choose certain morals and standards that I'm better than you. Or people project that upon believers. But Paul comes in, and the first thing he does is respect them. Th- think about that in, in your marketplace. And he says, Men of Athens, I perceive it every way that you are very religious. You are looking for the best things, the deepest things, the things that go beyond what we can see. They're relig- they're, these are religious leaders and philosophers, so he's, he's respecting them. He's not judging them. And as I pass along, I observe these objects of worship and I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. See, they, they had this, this place in their city that was the just-in-case sort of spot. Because now you guys know about, we all know about the pantheon of the gods of the Greeks. And if you don't know much, you know that there are a lot. But somewhere in all of that, in all of that effort, in all of that um, architecture and everything that they did, there was something in them that said, we're missing something. In everything that they sought after, everywhere, there was this thing, and you've probably heard it called before this, like a God-shaped hole. This, This vacuum inside a created being, a person that only can be filled by the one true God. And so as much as they tried to fill it up with all the things that they did and all their philosophies and all their rules for life and the religions that they had that were all, all over the map, they were still seeking to fill that space. And I think that's something that we all do. We're especially guilty of it. Whether it's here or in America, I don't know, but we'll just call it here. Success, comfort, relationship, uh, money, gear, skill, adventure, something beyond what everybody else can, and we shove all those things in, and every time, every single time, they come up empty, every time, because they can't fill us, because we have this space in us that is the altar to the unknown God, the one that we're looking for. And so Paul says... What therefore you worship as unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul's going to tell them who it is that they're missing. Let's go a little bit further here. This is the one I'm proclaiming to you, starting in 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. What he's doing here at the very beginning of this is he is, he's stopping and saying, 
over against everything that you believe is one God. Paul's making a claim here that we have to come to terms with and we have to face. So we, when we look at the scripture or we look at what Paul's saying pre-scripture, what we have to understand is that it all starts with the idea of one God over against all other gods. And we have to be willing to face that question if we're going to be authentic believers, if this is any part of where you're going to go with God. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is probably the biggest struggle that I face. And I've had so many people ask me about it here. How can one thing be true and not the other stuff? And not the other religions? How can they not all be going to the same place? We have got to face that, and it's really hard. So what I'm, I'm not trying to answer that question. But what I am trying to do is to say to you, regardless of what, what truth question you ask about any other faith, the thing that we're going to get to at the end of this is who is Jesus, and that will determine how you answer the other questions. Okay? So the God, now look at this from 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You can see him putting his hand back and showing. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So Paul goes through this progression with them, and he says, over against all the gods you have or, th- or think there are is one God. And, and here's the distinctives of this one God. He is the creator. In other words, everything else flows from him. He creates heaven and earth, and everything inside. And then he gives life to all of those things. Do you see how Paul is making a distinguishing uh, concept of God before them? If you just go ahead and think about other faiths in the process of, of him walking through this, is they are, and he's making this claim about who God is, the one true God, the creator, the one who brings, gives life, and everything. The everything word is pretty big gives life in everything. And he's sovereign overall. He, he created the people to go where they're going to go. He's a God of diversity and he's sovereign over all governments. I think Lisa or someone prayed to that effect this morning. That God is over all things, all governments. So do you see how Paul is drawing it down? He's saying God made everything. He breathed life into everything. He's a God of all of the individual diversity, all the diversity of people and down to actually the individual when he says that he is not far from any one of us. In 27, he says, he did all this, he was the, he's our creator, that, that man should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. So to me, I, I came to that, that verse right there and it caused me a little bit of trouble because I thought, wait a second now, why would God do all this? Why would he be the creator and create all this great stuff to point to him and then uh, make us feel around in the dark? And my first question was, that doesn't seem fair. And I mean, let's, let's be honest. 
I'm going to create you, and then I'm going to let you find your way to me. As if you have blinders on. That's, that's not fair. And I thought about it for a little bit longer. I thought, well, there, there is an other side to that as well. And that is that the other thing we prize so highly, that he doesn't make us follow him. You see, because when I said it's not fair that he makes us feel our way, we all agreed. But we weren't remembering in our back pocket is the, I'm an American card and I make my own choices. I'm an independent person. And God says, that is correct. I have given you the ability to choose me or to not choose me. I will reveal myself to you and make it possible for you to find me, but I'm not going to make you follow me. You see how Paul is, is bringing all of this down for this, this counsel and helping them to understand who this God is that he's talking about? And, then, and this is probably, this may be my favorite part, this next part. Paul says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Doesn't that sound like something you'd read in the book of Psalms or something? In God we live and breathe and have our meaning. We move, you know? Well, that's not from Psalms because he's not quoting anything from the Hebrew scriptures. It wouldn't matter to them. This is from one of their philosophers, one of their poets. He's quoting from their popular culture, something that they would know. It'd be like a song lyric that we all knew. And he's pulling it out and saying, hey, in him we move, we live and move and have our being. And then he brings it up. He says, and even as some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Here's another thing about the church, and I'll pick on us for a second, is we tend to shy away from the culture. You know, say, oh, that's not me. And Paul, on the other hand, embraces the culture full on, memorizes their songs and their poems, and goes to them and says, hey, you know what? Your music and your art and the things that you're calling out as God or for calling out to as, as if it were God, those things are pointing to the one true God. And so he actually appropriates it and quotes it almost like it's scripture. Like if, if I didn't know better and it didn't say that about your poets, I might have thought, oh, I wonder where that is in the Bible. You know? Because when you look at beautiful things a man has created, music, something painted, sculpture, poetry, song, these things are pointing us to God. They are, they are the um, man's, one of his ultimate resemblances to the creator is to create. And so if you're a believer in here, there is a line where the culture goes a little too far. I'm not suggesting, you know, just invest in anything. Understand, any, you know, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, let's not reject the culture. Let's see how it is, is leading people to, to seek the one true God and how it reflects that, that desire in our hearts. So, in him we live and move and have our being. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. That's, they're agreeing with him. And right after that, verse 29, he says, and since then, therefore, as you know, we're God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being like gold or silver or stone, like all that I'm seeing here, an image formed just by the imagination of man. Right? He's saying God is not something that we can make up and craft out of silver. 
Because you can't be born of something that's on the wall. So he's using their own desire to find God to, um, to, to in their own writings about it, to, to put them in a position where they have to say, oh, you're right. If we're God's offspring, then making gods out of wood and gold and all this is, doesn't make any sense. So he's, he's setting them up for the, the last thing that he's going to say. This is in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Let me stop there just for a second. The times of ignorance, what, what Paul is saying is that there is a turning point, there's a watershed moment in history right here where Jesus has come. And he hasn't presented this idea of Jesus yet. He said there's a watershed moment that's happened and, and I'm here to tell you about it. He commands, God commands all people everywhere to repent. So when I think of the word repent, I think of someone who is like humiliated and is shamefully saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. I'm repent, I repent, I repent. That's my idea of repent. But we need to be careful, and maybe it's yours, I don't know, but we need to be careful that that's not what we see here. What this word repent means in this case is that we turn. God says, what I want you to do is turn from all of these things that you've been trying to fill yourself up with to me, the one true God. So rather than, rather than repent in the sense of, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, is it, the idea is that you do an about face and say, oh, this is, this is what reality is. And that's what he's setting up. He's putting these people in a bind. You see, he's, he's setting them up where, where they have to say, hmm, I'm following his logic and, and I can't go back on it, but I don't know where to go from here. And this is where he, he says, this is where he brings up Jesus. But notice he never says Jesus' name. He commands all people everywhere to repent. And then verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul now, at the, the very last sentence of his argument before these people, is to bring up that there is a man who will be the judge, who will decide what is right and wrong. And he was proven to be that person by the resurrection. Now, when we, when we come to this, these, these are the the two pieces of who Jesus is that we really have to wrestle with. He was a man, and, and we would understand from a little bit more from the scripture that he was the son of God. But that God proved that he was that person by the resurrection. Now, that's hard stuff. I'm not even going to pretend like it's not hard. to believe. That is hard to believe. And each one of us has to wrestle with that. But as I've said before, when I see Paul and those other followers of Christ who saw the resurrected Jesus, when I see what they did, I'm convinced that that was a reality. And so Paul is presenting this before them. He doesn't say it's Jesus. He doesn't say anything about Jewish history, anything like that. He just says, here are people. There is a man, and he was proven to be the appointed one of God by, re- by this resurrection event. 
So, you know, I mentioned that coffee that I had with, um, with my friend a couple weeks ago. And he said something that, that stuck with another comment. He said, it's kind of like this with, with, this, um, with believing. He said, you get all of this information and here's the line of, and you math people will know what this is called, but here's the line of absolute certainty. And so all of this information about Jesus and all this, it brings me right up to the line, right beside it, but never seems to touch it. And he said, the, the thing about it is that if, if it's true, I've actually got to step across that in faith. Because it, it isn't going to be proven, even before these people, it isn't going to be proven in such a way that you're going to say, there is absolutely never, ever, ever going to be a doubt. God brings it up and he says, I'm not going to make you. I'm going to let you decide. And he brings it right up to the edge, but we have to step across that if we're going to believe. Uh, so look at what happens at the end. <laughs> he finishes speaking and everyone says, awesome, we're believers, let's go out to lunch. <laughs> nope. In 32, when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked him. You picture that, just mocking him, just straight up. And others said, okay, we'll hear a little bit more from you on this sometime. And Paul went out from their midst. But some joined him and believed. And it, and it names two names. Uh, Luke gives us two names. Dionysius, who was one of those council members, and a woman named Damaris. All of that, and two people were sure of, followed him. The rest mocked him or said, oh, you know, we'll hear some more. Paul doesn't always go into these situations of success. It's okay that it doesn't go well. We have to give ourselves permission to, uh, as if you're a believer and you're thinking, I, want to be, I would like to be like Paul. It's okay if things don't go well. But whether you are already a believer or you're thinking about it, there is that place where you actually have to, and God allows us to step across that line because he doesn't fill in every single gap for us. It's a decision that you will make to believe. So I, I guess uh, let me, we're gonna, what we're going to do here is we're going to take communion together for just a few moments. And I want to encourage you, as you've seen Paul in his... Um, the unfolding of the story of who God is and who Jesus is. Um, we get down to that last question of, of really who is Jesus? Is, is what Paul said true? Or is it not true? We have to decide. And if it's true, it means everything. If it's not true, you're completely unmoored and, and you can go. And you go on to the next thing and evaluate those truth claims. It can't be somewhere in between. And it should change your life either way.